Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, September 17th, 2017. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In 1992, Paramount Pictures released Leap of Faith, starring Steve Martin, Deborah Winger, Lolita Davidovich, Liam Nelson, and Meatloaf, the singer, not the main dish. Um, It's a story of the Reverend Jonas Nightingale, a fraudulent Christian faith healer who travels around the countryside holding revival meetings. Along the way, he makes a ton of money from unsuspecting attendees. The film centers around the small town of Rustwater, Kansas, uh, where Jonas's truck breaks down, and Rustwater, with its 27% unemployment rate, is in desperate need of rain to save the crops of this farming community. Learning that they'll be stuck there for days without replacement parts, Jonas decides to hold several uh, revival meetings, despite the town's small size, in an effort to cut some of their losses while the truck is being repaired. Now, throw in a suspicious sheriff, Liam Neeson, a potential romance, Lita Davidovich. It has all the makings of a very entertaining one-hour and 48-minute watch. Now, in the scene I'm about to show you, it's the opening night of revival in Restwater. Uh, Jonas and his band of experienced con men and women have worked the crowd in such a way that it appears that Jonas has supernatural abilities. But really, it's just eavesdropping and good technology. So let's watch. Due to copyright restrictions, we're unable to play the audio version of the video clip online. But we invite you to go to YouTube and uh, look for it there. So in the eyes of some, this emotional, faith-healing, supernatural, televangelist style of Christianity comes across as insincere and phony. That's, of course, the point of this entire movie, Leap of Faith. Reverend Jonas Nightingale is a fake. His Pentecostal act is 100% insincere until later in the film he encounters the amazing, transforming, true healing power of Jesus. But Pentecostalism, brothers and sisters, is a legitimate renewal movement within Protestant Christianity. And it's important for us to have an understanding of it. So welcome to the seventh of eight installments of our ongoing and series entitled Christianity's Family Tree, What Other Christians Believe and Why. And in this series, we're tracing our Christian roots, looking at how our faith has developed over the centuries. We began with the Orthodox Church and then looked at our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. We entered the Protestant Reformation with Lutherans and Presbyterians. We encountered the Anglicans and their middle way in England. And then the Baptists, who formed in reaction to the Anglicans. Next week, we'll finish our series by looking at the Methodists. But this week, we get to learn about the Pentecostal branch of our family tree. And it's a lot closer to home than you might actually know. As I've said each week, uh, I owe much to Reverend Adam Hamilton, pastor of United Methodist Church of the Resurrection in Leewood, Kansas, and the study guide that he's put together on the same subject. Well, Pentecostalism is the youngest of the major bodies of Christianity. The name of the movement can be originally traced back to the Jewish feast of Pentecost, Shavuot. It was known as the Festival of Weeks. It had a double uh, emphasis in Judaism. First, it marked Israel's wheat harvest, but it also remembered when God gave the law to Moses, when the Israelites were encamped outside of Mount Sinai. Then, early in the life of the Christian church, it was during this festival, on the exact day of Pentecost, that the church was born. 
as we just read a few moments ago, Jesus' followers were waiting for what he promised would be power from on high. And that's when the Holy Spirit filled the room where the disciples were gathering, and reports say that it was like tongues of fire resting on each believer. They were inspired to testify to God's acts of power in their lives, and 3,000 people came to give their life to Christ that first day. And from that moment on, the church was born. They were empowered to carry out the mission that Jesus had given to them before he had ascended. Now, historians say that the Christian Pentecostal movement began in 1901, but its roots actually trace back another 200 years and run through John Wesley and the Methodist Church. And we'll get a more detailed look at Methodism next week, but it's important to briefly touch on the subject as we set the stage for the rise of Pentecostalism. In the early 1700s, the Church of England seemed, to many, to be tied more to the intellect than to the heart. There was this little emphasis on holiness, and many seemed to be satisfied with just having, you know, a lukewarm faith. Well, John Wesley and his brother Charles, both Anglican priests, began to seek more. They sought, uh, they pursued rigorous spiritual disciplines of prayer, Bible study, works of piety. They met with small groups to, for accountability and, uh, and growth. In 1738, both Wesley brothers had a powerful renewal experience in their lives. And as a result, they incorporated into their beliefs the need for conversion and for continuing work of the Holy Spirit in the life of every believer. They began to speak about sanctification or God's work in us to make us more and more holy, to make us more and more like Jesus, a process that happens over the entire course of our lives. John Wesley went on to be the leader of a great 18th century religious revival in England. And Wesley's followers, called Methodists, were known for their spiritual passion and for their religious experiences that were deemed by some, especially the more traditional Anglicans, as being too emotional and too excessive. Wesley and his followers seemed to be able to hold together, sometimes in tension with one another, the intellect and the passions, the evangelist and the social gospel. During the 19th century, a number of groups broke away from the Methodist movement to create their own denominations, their own churches. Uh, nearly all of them were emphasizing this holiness and sanctification part. They included the Nazarenes and their predecessors, the Church of God, the Adventists, the Salvation Army, the Wesleyan Church, and many others. These groups tended to be more theologically conservative than Methodists, and they placed a greater emphasis on both personal piety and uh, the personal fervor of experience, that passion that comes to worship. Well, Pentecostalism was born out of this movement, this holiness movement, in 1901 at Bethel Bible College in Topeka, Kansas. Charles Falk Parham, who had a Methodist background, was teaching at Bethel. His study on the book of Acts led him to wonder if, could the Holy Spirit, the acts that were recorded in the book of Acts, could that happen today here in the church? And so he came to believe what he called to be the baptism in the Holy Spirit, that this was a separate baptism from the believer's receipt of the Holy Spirit at baptism. He felt that such an experience, to be completely immersed in the Holy Spirit, would be demonstrated first by speaking in tongues, a process in which the Holy Spirit enabled Christians to speak in a language that they had not previously known, or a language that was seemingly completely unintelligible. So his class at Bethel College began to pray for this experience. 
A woman named Agnes Osmond was the first to experience baptism of the Holy Spirit as she started speaking in an unintelligible language. And with a short time after that, almost all of the class had also received this special blessing. Parm went around the country telling people about this and encouraged them to pray for the same experience in their own life. Well, when he was in Los Angeles, meeting in an abandoned Methodist church on Azusa Street, believers experienced a powerful move of the Holy Spirit. Local newspapers publicized it. People came from all around to see what it was about. And soon, even miracles began to break out in this revival community. Well, modern-day Pentecostals still view the speaking in tongues as normative for the church. Those in non-Pentecostal denominations who have had Pentecostal experiences of the Holy Spirit, they're considered to be charismatic, taken from the Greek word in the New Testament for spiritual gifts, which is charismata. Today, it's estimated that there are as many as 600 million Christians worldwide who are either Pentecostal or charismatic. Now, we've seen that most Christian denominations claim to preserve the earliest traditions of the church, some by way of continuity, others by going back to what they saw in the book of Acts. Well, Baptists, we saw, view church history in this way. Pentecostals would say that the Baptists hadn't gone far enough back to reclaim the practices of the New Testament sufficiently, for they missed one of the most powerful experiences of the apostolic church, and that was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So as a result... This is how the Pentecostals might view church history and their role within it. A 2011 study by the Pew Forum identified 279 million Pentecostals around the world, which works out for about 4% of the entire population in the world being Pentecostal. It also means that Pentecostalism amounts for about 12% of all Christians. Pentecostalism can be found in over 700 denominations as well as many independent churches. So they are a group that garners our attention. Now, not wanting to oversimplify things, there are four basic emphases that almost all Pentecostals would uh, adhere to. The first is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned before, most Christians believe that the Holy Spirit, it does come to us at our baptism and confirmation. Pentecostals would say yes, We agree, it absolutely, the Spirit comes at baptism. But there's a second baptism, a second anointing that can come, a second work of grace in which the Holy Spirit completely immerses believers and fills them with supernatural power. Pentecostals have an uh, openness to this and a desire that they would be filled with God's power in this way. And speaking in tongues is just one of the manifestations of this powerful experience. They also emphasize a personal relationship with Christ. Now, Pentecostals will believe it's necessary for a believer to accept Christ as Lord and Savior. That's pivotal. But what's even more important is the ongoing relationship that one has with Jesus. It's not enough to just know about God and even intellectually agree with God or understand what the Bible says about faith, but one must have that personal relationship with Christ. And Pentecostals place a strong emphasis on the emotional dimensions of one's relationship with Jesus. Just like the people that you love closely and you're emotionally attached to them and the ups and downs, that's how they experience their relationship with with Jesus. Third, they lift up the second coming of Jesus. Christians over the centuries have believed that Christ will come again in final victory, but it's largely been spiritualized. It's something that's off in a distant future. But Pentecostals began expecting Jesus to come back soon. 
Most Pentecostal pastors will, will not predict a date of the Lord's coming, though uh, people have throughout the centuries. Part of it is that the book of Acts says nobody knows when it is that Jesus will come again. But for many years, it was believed that the Lord would return in 1988, which was 40 years after the restoration of the nation of Israel. There's a sense among many in the Pentecostal movement that we don't know when it is, or they don't know when it is, but the return of Jesus will be sometime within the lifetime of most of those who are alive today. And then fourth, there's an emphasis on modern-day miracles and healing. Oral Roberts was one of the best-known ambassadors for Pentecostalism until 1968 when he joined the United Methodist Church. He had taken his message across the country, preaching that miracles still occur, that the same Holy Spirit that caused people to speak in tongues can bring about deliverance and healing today, and that Jesus promised that we would do the, the same things even more than what he did. The book of James assures us that if any are sick and call for the leaders of the church and are anointed with oil, the prayer of faith will bring healing. Pentecostals believe this wholeheartedly, and they like to pray for big miracles. One of the elements of this series that I absolutely love is being able to visit a different church within the denomination here in the Antelope Valley as a part of uh, this study that we're doing. So this past week, I visited Highlands Christian Fellowship, located on 20th Street and Rancho Vista Boulevard. Now, one of the reasons I chose them is because uh, they originally started the church softball league that we're playing in. And uh, at the current season, we have six teams. Five of them have ties to Highland Christian Fellowship, and then there's us, the United Methodists. Well, they are a part of the Foursquare Gospel Church, which is a worldwide Pentecostal denomination. Now, as you can see by the Foursquare logo, their four symbols match exactly with the four components of Pentecostalism that we just mentioned. Christ is Savior. He's also the baptizer baptizer who brought the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is the healer and the soon-to-be-coming king in final glory. Foursquare churches were founded by Amy Simple McPherson. She was a Canadian-born evangelist. Her mother was part of the Salvation Army. Her father was a Methodist. When she was 17 years old, she attended a revival meeting where a traveling Pentecostal missionary from Ireland, Robert James Simple, was preaching. Now, she had been struggling with her faith, but here in 1907, Amy rededicated her life to God and made the conversion to Pentecostalism. The two were married less than a year later. They moved to Chicago. They became part of William Durham's Full Gospel Assembly. And there, Amy discovered that she had a unique ability of the interpretation of glossolalia, or speaking in tongues. So she would translate, as people spoke in tongues with stylistic eloquence, what seemed to so many to be indecipherable utterances of the Holy Spirit. And she was able to, to, to discern what it was that God was trying to say through those people and give words of encouragement to the congregation. Soon she get, began evangelizing and holding tent revivals all across America. Amy came out to California in 1918, and soon thousands of people were lining up to hear her preach. By 1923, she had built Angelus Temple as both a place of worship and an ecumenical center for persons of all Christians' faith to meet and to build alliances. McPherson sometimes said that when she first got to California, all she had was a car, $10, and a tambourine. And look where the Holy Spirit led her. Well, worship attendance soon exceeded 10,000 at a time. And it was advertised to be the largest single Christian congregation in the world. 
According to church records, Angelus Temple received 40 million visitors within their first seven years of operation. This is the tradition that the Highlands Church comes out of. Highlands was planted almost 29 years ago as part of Lancaster Foursquare Church, a church that has birthed a dozen or so other churches in their lifetime. I had the pleasure of meeting with Mark Goodell, the executive pastor of Highlands Church. Uh, the, the, the lead pastor is Ken Hart, and Mark's dad was actually Ken's pastor when uh, he joined Lancaster Foursquare at the age of 18. Pastor Ken was part of the Jesus movement in the 70s. If you remember that, that's when the church suddenly met people wearing jeans, bare feet, and guys with long hair. But everyone was welcome. So fast forward to 29 years ago, Mark's brother's Greg, uh, Greg was going to start a new church in the Antelope Valley, but God had a different idea. So Greg handed the reins over to Ken, who was pastoring a church down in the Canyon Country. And with his wife, Terry, both of them founded the Highlands Church. They started on the east side of Palmdale with no money, no building, no people, not even a tambourine like Amy Simple McPherson. Eventually, though, Pastor Mark and his wife came together to join them in leadership, and slowly, by the grace of God, the church began to grow. They moved to this location in 2006. Pastor Mark said they almost tripled in their worship attendance overnight. The missions of the Highlands Church is to help people say yes to God. They do this by loving, mending, training, and sending. Loving people where they are unconditionally. Mending them through healing from all forms of brokenness. Training the people to be who God has called and created them to be. And then sending them out. Being empowered to do what God has called them to do. And so far, this church, which came out of a church that planted 12 churches, has also planted six churches of their own. Pastor Mark said that each week, 30 to 50 people will make a personal commitment to Jesus for the very first time over the course of all of their worship services. This is their worship center. It seats 800. They have four services on Sunday, and they do a wonderful job of connecting with families. They have 11 pastors, three pastoral assistants, nine additional administrative staff. This is part of their children's sitter, which is vibrant and colorful, and this is their youth worship space. When I asked Pastor Mark about their Pentecostal influence and the charismatic element of worship in their church, he explained it this way. He said, here at the Highlands, <clears throat> people have freedom. They have the freedom to lift their hands in worship or, or, or to get on their knees if they want to. The arts are welcome here so they can bring whatever gift they've been blessed with, including tambourines, and use it to the glory of God in the service. The music style is as diverse as their congregation, from traditional Christian music to African-American gospel to Hispanic influences. They embrace their God-given diversity. But I want to take you back to this picture of Pastor Mark that I took. Do you notice the picture that's hanging on the wall in Mark's office directly behind him? Anything look familiar in it? It's a picture of the 25th anniversary of the founding of the Foursquare denomination in front of Angelus Temple here in Los Angeles. Mark's wife, Mickey, gave it to him as a gift. She saw it at another Foursquare church when they were visiting a few years ago. Now, the reason she got a copy of this particular photo isn't just because it's a great part of their denomination's history. It's because both his father and his mother were in that photo when it was taken, and she recognized it when she saw it. That's his father. His mother is 
somewhere in the back. I didn't get a close-up of that. Pastor Mark is a man whose entire life has been tied in the Pentecostal movement. He's seen the power of God move in mighty ways. He's been blessed to be a part of what God is doing in and through the Highlands Christian Fellowship for close to three decades now. And I'm grateful to call him one of my new friends. Now, no matter what branch of Christianity we've looked at over the course of the series, there are always elements that we can learn from our brothers and sisters in faith that we can take to heart to help us on our own journey as we walk with Jesus. Our Pentecostal brothers and sisters are no exception. They teach us to take seriously the power of the Holy Spirit that is available to each and every believer. Pastor Adam Hamilton uh, notes that we often try to live our Christian life without drawing on the strength of the Spirit, that we can do it on our own. But instead, every day we should be asking God for the power of the Spirit in our lives. Make that part of your prayer when you wake up. Good morning, God. Thank you for keeping me alive today. May the Spirit give me whatever power I need to do what you're calling me to do. Second, Pentecostals remind us of the need to identify and use our spiritual gifts. The Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit has given each of us gifts and abilities. Some we're born with, others we've developed over the course of our lives. God's expectation is that we use the gifts that we have been given to build up the body of Christ and to glorify God. And I hope that eventually all of you will be a part of our discipleship huddles that happen here. These are small group experiences that help us not only learn to hear God speaking into our lives, but figure out how it is that God has wired us for ministry. What are the gifts that God has given us? How can we use them in the church and in the community for the glory of God? Third, I think we need to be reminded uh, to reclaim the healing power of prayer and to pray with more boldness. I was not kidding when I told the children they have supernatural powers. Jesus welcomed the children. I think some of the most powerful prayers in the world are children. Teach your children to pray for healing, for strength, for others. Every fourth Sunday here, we have opportunities for healing prayer as well at the end of the service. Uh, and we invite you to come forward or for yourself or for others. We can't understand. We don't know. We can't control God's healing. But if we don't ask, it will never come. May we have the courage and the, the, uh, the passion to believe that God desires that each of us be made whole. And whether it happens here or in eternity, God is working for good in our lives and in the world. Thanks be to God for the incredible passion, vitality, creativity, and spiritual power that our Pentecostal brothers and sisters bring to the family. May we continue to be reminded that we are all part of the same body of Christ, that we indeed are partners together in ministry for the kingdom of God. And the next time you drive down Rancho Vista Boulevard on your way past Marie Kerr Park and you pass the Highlands Church, just offer a short prayer of blessing for our brothers and sisters there. Thanks be to God. Amen.